Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Patrick. And I'm Zoe Albion, your other co-host. On this podcast, we talk to scientists about their recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to these scientists about how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn how they decided that they were new species and the behind the scenes stories of finding them. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the new species podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Kyla Pearson. Kyla just graduated with her master's from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. She's here today to talk to me about her paper on the April 22nd issue of Zootaxa, in which she and her co-author describe three new species of, get this, deep sea vampire worms. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. This is Such a dream being on your podcast. A dream? Wow, that's a new one. (laughs) It is. Nobody really says that, but that's great. (laughs) Oh, great. Yeah, your podcast is so amazing. There's so many new species waiting to be discovered and described, and I'm I'm just so honored and, and happy to be here. Oh, well, great. And I'm very happy to have you here, too, because... The topic we're going to be talking about is kind of a bucket list for the the podcast. Uh, I've, ever since I started this, I've been trying to contact people to do some of these deep sea things. I did get somebody who, who told me a little bit about hagfish, and that was fascinating. But now we're hitting a really interesting area, talking about some of the polychaete worms. Uh, and we'll talk about what those are in a, in a moment. And deep sea vampire worms, no less, from vents and seeps. So we have a lot to unpack in that. It's, it's pretty exciting. So let's start at the, at the very beginning of all this. This is a type of worm, and it's called a vampire worm, but it, it falls into a larger kind of loose group called polychaete worms. What are polychaete worms? Correct. So polychaetes are a class of generally marine annelid worms. And when I say annelid, I just mean segmented worms. So there's terrestrial segmented worms, just like your earthworm. Um, and then also deep sea segmented worms. So yeah, polychaete is just kind of an umbrella term for um, a class of generally marine annelid worms. Yeah, and, and the polychaetes normally have these little crazy things on the side of them called parapodia, which are like false feet, right? They have these little paddles on the side that kind of make them, if people were to see a larger version of this, they may confuse them for something like a like a seagoing millipede or centipede type thing. Would that be kind of an accurate way to say that? Yes, definitely. Yeah, so on each segment, there's um, there's cirri, which kind of look like oars that the worms are able to um, locomote with. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and they, these particular ones now are called vampire worms, right? Tell us, what, how do they get the name vampire worms? What are they doing? Because the, the, we should be clear, worms in general fill a lot of ecological roles. Right. So we have everything from detritivores, like what we think of kind of like our typical earthworms. They include the leeches, which are, of course, bloodsuckers, which is where you might think of like vampire worms, to, to really pretty voracious predators on the ocean floor. And so where do these fall in all that? How do they get that name vampire? That's a great question that I'm so excited to answer. 
So, yes, my vampire worms do drink the blood of another type of tube worm. And that's how they get their name, their common name, vampire worms. Oh, so another tube worm. So, and that's another going to be a type of annelid, correct? Correct. Yeah, and these are the ones that, like, if people see video of, like, these deep-sea ocean vents where there's, like, hydrothermal activity, like water boiling up and it's, you know, the bottom of the ocean. The tube worms would be the things you kind of see coming out of, like, these long tubes with, like, little almost, like, goosenecky-looking things or, or feathery things coming Plumes. out, right? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So these tube worms live in hydrothermal vents, and they're actually known as ecosystem engineers, because they build a substrate for a whole lot of other organisms that live on top of them. And I think that my favorite part about tube worms is that they, they eat bacteria that live in hydrothermal vents. So before 1977, just 44 years ago, all life was thought to need sunlight to survive. But ever since hydrothermal vents and methane seeps were discovered, it's known that life can exist without sunlight, which is such a cool application for finding life on other planets and outside of our solar system. Yeah, because normally we think of photosynthesis, which is what plants do, green plants do. Like we think of like they use sunlight and they convert that into, into foods. So they take light energy and convert it into chemical energy, and that, that would be sugars that they use. When we get out of areas, like at the bottom of the ocean, there's no light. Like, it's completely black. That's the black as you can get. So there's no sunlight getting there. So we just assumed that things would kind of, like, filter down to them. But that's not true. They do something called chemosynthesis, right? Instead of photosynthesis, they take inorganic compounds like methane and the like, and they're able to convert that into the, into the necessary food molecules that they need. Is that Did I describe that correctly? Yep, exactly. Exactly like that. So because of the methane and other gases that seep up from the methane seeps and the hydrothermal vents, bacteria can survive. And then the bacteria becomes the form of primary production, where tube worms and other organisms are able to harness that energy and thrive off of that. And then other organisms are able to eat those organisms, and it creates this food chain that's deep down in the ocean away from any photon or any light particle. Pretty neat. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing that you have these ecosystems just at the bottom of the ocean that can survive just independent of the sun. Just, you know, like, nah, we don't need that. Nobody needs the suntan. So there is a theory that life actually began in the deep sea, and the first form of life is bacteria. Yeah, and we actually have fossil bacteria you can find in, like, three and a half billion year old rocks and things like that and that, that were trapped in sediments at the bottom of the ocean at that point. Yeah, and, and they were probably not using sunlight. They were probably just using the, the compounds that were coming up out of these vents and the like to, to form the basis of all life that we see today, which is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Another reason to love the deep sea. Yeah, exactly. Even if you can't see it without going down in a, in a rover. And that, that kind of gets us to how did you find these things? So new species are found with virtually every deep sea cruise. And aboard the deep sea cruises, we have these amazing, amazing machines that are able to dive deep down into the ocean and collect samples of inverts and fishes and inorganic compounds. And there are two types of submersibles. One is a ROV, which is an acronym that stands for Remotely Operated Vehicle. And then the other type of submersible is called an HOV, 
And HOVs are a little bit less common than ROVs. Um, and HOV is also an acronym that stands for Human Operated Vehicle. So both of these machines are essentially submarines or underwater robots that are right. able so to travel. So you get travel. the one that's controlled by a person up on the surface, and the other one is like what people see on like the Discovery Channel with the big bubble, and they have people going down actually inside of it. That's the HOV one, right? Yes. Yes, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, so ROVs are connected to the quote-unquote mothership, which is the research vessel that the scientists are aboard, and it's attached via a, a cord called a umbilical cord. And there are, there are pilots, quote-unquote pilots, that fly these, these amazing robots around in the deep sea from aboard on the mothership. How do they do the collections then? Like once they're down there and you get to the vents, so you, you first there's always the problem of locating the vents or the seeps. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to those, there's the problem of uh, being on a boat that's bouncing all over the ocean. Right. And then you have to send something down to it. And once you get down there to them, mm-hmm. how do you actually do the collections? How do these things collect things other than, I, you know, we can see video doing stuff. We see that on TV all the time. How do you collect things at that depth and then bring them all the way up to the surface? Because that's a challenge in and of itself. Yeah, that's a great question. So ROVs and HOVs are equipped with different mechanisms to take different types of samples. So um, I'll start with with sediment. So sediment are collected with something called a sediment core, which is essentially this tube that's pressed down to the sediment and collects a, a core, if you will, of sediment. And ROVs and HOVs are also equipped with robotic arms that can go in and and break off a deep sea coral or something that's a little bit more hard. Um, whereas squishy animals are a little bit more difficult to collect and keep intact. So my favorite apparatus that is equipped to the ROVs and HOVs is called a slurping mechanism. Slurping mechanism. And it's basically just it's basically just a vacuum. So the pilots of these ROVs are just amazing. And even though they're potentially miles above the ROV on the ship, they're able to watch in real time um, a video of of the arm that they're using to collect. They're basically drone pilots. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah, they're basically drone pilots. So they're able to, to see what sample they want to collect and see the organism that they're targeting and then move the slurping mechanism, essentially just a vacuum, right up to where they want it. And then they press the vacuum key, and then you can see the little cute organism go into the vacuum. So that's how my worms were collected, um, the slurping mechanism via But you brought ROV up the, the interesting HOV. point of this was, so, so now we know how they're collected, sorry, but the, the interesting point of this was, how do you get it back up to the surface then? Because there's a real challenge with that. Tell us what the challenge is of taking something from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the ocean. Yes, there there's so many challenges. There's not just one, but not not just the distance, right? Because you got to uh-huh. get that ROV or HOV back up to the top, which is you know like it's reeled in or 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 driven up. But there's a real problem with the organisms themselves moving from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the ocean. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, good question. So you can imagine that miles deep, the pressure is a lot different than just the one atmospheric pressure that you and I are breathing and um, living in right now. So my worms have very squishy tissue. Um, so lucky for them, they 
I don't know if, if it's lucky for them because this is this is the first time <laughs> that they were brought to the surface, so they don't really have this problem to deal with very often. Um, but my worms don't really go under um, – they don't really fall apart when you bring them to the surface. So lucky for me, lucky for me, my worms um, have very squishy – malleable tissue and they keep their shape when brought to the surface um but but other fish and other inverts do not because they haven't evolved with lesser pressure um so they can their their body forms definitely change when brought to the the surface of the ocean yeah it's like if people take a plastic bottle of water or something like that and they drink a little bit of it and then they go up they're in the mountains or something like that and they go up higher they'll notice that the bottle gets like really like full of air because mm-hmm. there's just less air pressure. And as soon as you open it, sometimes they'll even go, Psst. Right. and if you take that same bottle that you've opened at the top of the mountain and you close it and you take it down, you'll notice that the sides of the, of the bottle crush in a little bit. And that's because you're at a higher pressure down there and it's actually pushing in on the bottle. It's the same type of thing. Only imagine that happening on the inside of the organism, right? Where they go up and they just kind of go pop. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, for so. us, if we go down, we go squish because we just can't <laughs> handle that pressure. Right. Yeah. Um, that's that's one of my worst fears is accidentally getting attached to an ROV or an HOV and getting sent down to the deep sea. But yeah, exactly. I don't I don't think that's gonna happen. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we actually take styrofoam cups with us out to the deep sea, and it's kind of um, a, a fun deep sea biology. Um, practice to to bring these styrofoam cups and then draw on them um you know we can write like the date that we're collecting these samples and the rov or ev name and then send these styrofoam cups down to the deep sea and they come back about a 20th of the size is how they started out (laughs) yeah they just get crushed that much huh right yeah they do yeah it's phenomenal and well, I'm sorry. I'm stuck on that one for a second. That one's in my yeah. brain. <laughs> <laughs> so we know how you went down and you collected these new species now with using the mm-hmm. the, the remote-operated vehicles or the human-operated vehicle, right? And they, they basically slurp up a sample, and then you, you were able to sift through that. I mean, there's probably a lot of stuff in that. And I doubt you're the only scientist who was working on this stuff at the moment. There are probably okay, Kyla, you're going to work on this, and somebody else is going to work on that, and this is your set of organisms, and then you mm-hmm. all take them back to the lab, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then tell, tell us about the process in the lab. What Just briefly, like, what did you have to do with them to decide that these were actually new species? Because this is in a genus that had one species described mm-hmm. from, a, from, a, from an underwater rift area near the Galapagos, and now it's been found with your work quite a ways away from there, as I recall, right in your paper. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so how did you figure out like, oh, this is not only in that genus, Galapago mystides, but also mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of new ones. Tell us a little bit about that process. In 1985, Dr. James Blake published a new description for genus Galapago mystides and type species Aristata. So the type species Aristata was found at the Galapagos Rift at 2,460 meters deep, Um, and Dr. James Blake did not do any DNA analysis on this. And then five years later, in 1990, Dr. Blake published another description of a new species of worm, Um, and then he categorized this worm to be under a different genus than Galapagomystides. He 
he decided that, that it was with genus Protomystes, and the new species was Varinae, Protomystes Varinae, based on the worm having an unfused segment, one, to the prostomium. So the prostomium is just kind of um, the head, if you will, of a worm. And then the first segment is the first segment that is uh, behind the head. So Yeah, so you think about the lines on an earthworm, and then each of those is a segment. So you talk about how it's fused to the stuff behind it. So they actually kind of look like one segment, and, but there's actually two there, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then these segments can either be fused dorsally or ventrally. Um, so, so the top or bottom? Yes, exactly, the top or the bottom. Thank you. So this new species, Protomycetes varinae, was was different than the type species of Galapagomystides in that it has a fused segment where Aristotle, the type species, does not. So Blake decided that it was not with Galapagomystides, it was with Protomystides, and DNA was not done on either of these analyses. Um, Which, in fairness, <laughs> you know, at that time was not a common thing to be doing with all of these things. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I should I should add that DNA is a is a fairly new analysis um, that goes along with describing new species. So before DNA, taxonomists just use morphology, um, which is just kind of like what the animals look like, um, depending on appendages and just their general appearance. Right. Right. Um, so my project was describing three new species of Galapagomystides, and also re-describing the genus to include Protomystides varinae, which is now Galapagomystides varinae. Which you discovered with DNA. You were like, oh, exactly. we run the DNA of all these things, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, wait, this thing we thought was different is actually in this. Yes, exactly. So though morphology says a lot, DNA definitely does have the last say. So I was able to extract DNA from all five species of Galapagomystides, the three new ones, and then also Varinae and the type species Aristata. Would you collect it on the same trip as these other three, right? Good question. No, not the same trip. So that's where it gets a little complicated and convoluted, but Galapagomystides species are found all around the Pacific, which is pretty Mm -hmm. cool. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, because you... You actually have a couple of them you collected from the Western Pacific. Mm-hmm. And then the, one of the other new species is from the Eastern Pacific. Yes. And then there's other specimens that are from different places in between even. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So Aristata, the type species that was found by Blake, was found on off of the Galapagos um, at the Galapagos Rift. And Varine was found at Juan de Fuca hydrothermal vent off of Oregon. And the new species, Galapagomystides, Bob Pierce, and I, I think later I'll I'll go over um, the nomenclature and and how I name them. But yeah, so maybe I should start. Yeah, Bob Pierce and I and Kathy are from are from the eastern or from western, right? Western. Correct. Yes, western vents that you found. Correct. That they that was found. So Galapagomystides Kathy was found at White Lady Vent just over a mile deep off of Fiji, while Galapagomycetes Bob Pierce and I was found at Tokam Vent, just over two miles deep off of Tonga. So those two species were found in the Western Pacific, 
while the other new species, the third species, Galapagomyces patrici, was found in the eastern Pacific at Perita Seep, which is which is a seep, right? Not a hydrothermal vent yeah. where the other two species were found from. Um, off of Costa Rica, just less than a mile deep. All right. And so we have hydrothermal vents, which tend to be very hot. And then Correct. we have a, what's called a cold seep on the other side of the ocean, literally the other side of the Pacific Ocean. And this is just an area where instead of having that, that hot water event, the geothermal event, here we're just getting methane leaking out of the, the, the sediments. Is that the difference between the seep and the, the geothermal area? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, the main difference between a methane seep, a.k.a. cold seep, and a hydrothermal vent is, is the temperature. So even though um, cold seeps are called cold seeps, they're not, they're not any colder than ambient seawater, and sometimes they're even a little bit warmer um, than the ambient seawater. But, but they're not nearly as warm as a hydrothermal vent, which can have really high temperatures, right? Right, exactly. So hydrothermal vents can be upwards of 700 degrees Fahrenheit. And we know that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, but because these hydrothermal vents are so deep in the ocean and undergoing so much pressure, they actually don't boil, which is really fascinating. Yeah, and... Just to be clear, the organisms you're collecting weren't right at the place where it's 700 degrees. It warms up the water around it. So the stuff right where the, the hottest stuff is coming out, very little life was found there. But just close to that, where the temperature decreases, is where you start getting life in these weird vents that put out all sorts of heat and gases and all sorts of things put into the water. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yep, exactly. So we can imagine these fissures in the deep ocean. Um, they're essentially underwater volcanoes yeah. um, and this this super hot water is is boiling up or not boiling up but the super but, hot yeah, yeah, it's coming up it's, it's it's superheating in the in the exposure to that right yes volcano mm-hmm. so hydrothermal vents are essentially underwater volcanoes and this super hot water is coming up from deep in the earth's mantle and it's extremely hot and when it mixes with the ambient seawater in the deep sea, you can imagine that most ambient seawater areas in the deep sea are, are rather chilly. Um, <laughs> the water coming up from the Earth's mantle cools off really quickly, um, though it does create this incredible, diverse, rich community of, of fauna in the deep sea. And then you send down the little rovers and you pick them all up and bring them back up and you're able to use DNA to help identify them. But the most fascinating part of this is not necessarily that you were able to identify them with DNA, but how small they are. These things are tiny, aren't they, right? Yeah, they are. They are really tiny. They're, they're about the length of a human thumbnail. Yeah, sometimes a little bit smaller, sometimes a little bit larger, depending on how old they are. Um, but yeah, lucky for me, you can see them with with a naked eye but you can use a microscope to really magnify their morphology and and really understand um, what they look like yeah and as I recall looking at the at your paper that you published not only are they long but they're also extremely thin so some of these would be just a few few hair lengths wide, right? So if you just took three or four strands of hair, that's all the wider they are, even though they could be as long as your thumbnail. Does that sound pretty accurate? Yes, definitely. They're dorso 
laterally flattened, sorry, they're dorsoventrally flattened. So they are much wider than they are um, from the width from their, from the top yeah, of them to the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're flattened. They're dorsal. Yeah, they're kind of flattened out, flattened, but they're still exactly. they're still pretty thin looking. Like they're 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 these little tiny hair like things almost. They're a little wider than a hair, but yeah, I think you said one was one millimeter, and another measurement I saw in there was 0.8 millimeters, which is just fractions of an inch for for those using the standard units. Yeah, right, very exactly. very small organisms, but very hair like things. And and somebody had to pick that out of a bunch of sediment that got slurped up too, right? Yeah, so good question. My worms actually hang out on top of vestimentiferin tube worms, um, which is their host. So my worms are cruising around in these amazing hydrothermal vent and methane seep communities on top of these tube worms. And the slurping mechanism that we use to collect them is able to go in and around these tube worms and, and target my worms, the Galapagomycidae worms, to suck them up. So they're not in the sediment, which is good, because sifting through all that sediment would probably be a nightmare. Correct, yeah. Though there are lots of other polycutes that live in sediment. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, this gets to something that we've touched on already, and that's the names that you gave these new worms. And it's kind of interesting. You you named, we, we did, or you did patronyms with these, right? So uh, naming them after people, why don't you tell us, mm -hmm. let's start with the ones from the Western Pacific, Bob Pierce and I and Kathy, why don't you tell us how those names came about? Great question. So that's actually um, the species that I started with in my naming process. So Galapagomycetes Bob Pierce and I is named after my father, Bob Pearson, and the Galapagomycetes Bob Pierce and I species has these really alluring, whimsical long Siri coming from the first three segments. Kind of and almost look like tentacles or something coming out, right? Exactly, yes. And in prior descriptions, these elongated Siri are actually called tentacular Siri, but they're not tentacles. So, so now we call them elongated dorsal and ventral Siri. But because the species has really long dorsal elongated Siri, um, they're kind of reminiscent of my dad's mustache. So I named Bob Pierce and I after my dad, Bob Pearson. Yes. And then the next So species... how did the other one end up looking like your mother? <laughs> Good question. Um, so Galapagomycetes cathier was the next species that I named. And I named cathier after my mom because, well, I knew that I wanted to name a species after my mom and my dad and then also my boyfriend, which I'll get into later. Um, but I figured that since... Cathier was was collected from um, a, a closer region to my dad. I figured that would make sense. So both my mom and my dad are, are gathered from the Western Pacific. Um, yeah, and, and that then, gets us to the third species, which was the one over close to Costa Rica. Yes. That's named after somebody else important to you. Yes. So Galapagomycetes patrici was collected from the Eastern Pacific from a seep. Parita seep, not a vent. Um, the other two species were collected from vents. And also, Galapagomycetes patrici has a fused segment one to the prostomium. So it's a little different than the other two species. And I named Galapagomycetes patrici after my boyfriend, Patrick Shaughnessy. And so when we name species, you know, they, 
one of the common things that happens now is we do these patronyms, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's even pop icons. Uh, the next episode, I hope, will be the the millipede that was named after Shania Twain. Uh, oh we're gosh, trying to work I on that it. one. Yeah, and and then of course these are named after family members. I have one that's named after my. I have a beetle species named after my son. I have spider that's named after my daughter. Things like that. So yeah, these are becoming increasingly popular to name species after other individuals. And I think that helps raise awareness of taxonomy in general, because mm-hmm. then people are, are, are not seeing just these strictly scientific names. They're seeing something more recognizable in them. Don't you agree? Do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, for me, initially, I thought that I was perhaps going to name these species after after something that's, that's funny. Um, somebody in my lab named a a deep sea worm that she found after Scooby-Doo, which was hilarious and great. Um, and then I decided to name these species after the three people who are most important to me. Um, also, I, I did my master's down in San Diego while my boyfriend lived in Santa Cruz. So I figured that um, putting up with long distance for a couple of years I, I figured that it would be nice to name this species after my boyfriend. All right. So, Kyla, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciated having you here, and I learned a lot about worms that I never thought I would learn. And I mean that in a good way. Yes. And so I appreciate you having come on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. This podcast is so wonderful, and I'm honored to be here. And thank you for asking me questions about my worms. I, I love my worms so much, and... Um, I just think that they're so cool and I love talking about them and I want everybody to know how cool they are. So thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed my time here with you. It was our pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Once again, Kyla Pearson's paper is in the April 22nd issue of Zootaxa. The title of the paper is Vampire Worms, a revision of Galapagomystides with the description of three new species. See the episode notes for a link to her paper. And to learn more about Kyla, follow her on Instagram, at Kyla Coconut. That's at K-A-I-L-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.